Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. It is good to be with you. Welcome to Harvest. If you're new, special welcome to you as well. As Trey mentioned earlier, my name is Lee. I have the joy and privilege to serve our, our movement uh, as a senior pastor. And, and for those that are kind of new to Harvest, we really are three congregations. Um, we've got a congregation in Lake Nona. We've got a Spanish congregation up north and then here as, as well. And it's our hope and our desire and our prayer that God will allow us to continue to expand throughout Central Florida because there are a lot of people that need to know who Jesus is. Um, what we're doing matters. And, and I, want, I want to remind us of that this, this morning. Um, I had kind of a, a, one of those reality checks. Have you ever had one of those in life? Where you kind of, it helps recenter your purpose, helps recenter, okay, this is what really matters. This is why we do what we do. I had a couple weeks ago, um, I had a friend that died. And uh, he's an acquaintance that I got to know working out at Orange Theory. I worked out at Orange Theory for about five years until my knee finally said, you're done um, with that. And we got to know each other and, and uh, we were workout partners um, week after week after week after week. And uh, he contracted awful cancer and the cancer attacked his spinal cord and uh, he didn't make it. Um, and it was one of those sharp reality checks for me because he's got a three-year-old, he's married. Um, and yet he was, I don't think I would, I'm under describing it to say he was hostile towards Jesus. Um, there was just something in him. He didn't want anything to do with church. He didn't want to have any conversations that were spiritual at, at all. And it just reminds me, guys, what we do, it, it matters. And, and that's one of the reasons why we're walking through this specific series, taking a deeper dive into understanding who Jesus is that Jesus is more than just a historical character that we find written in the Bible. There, there's so much more to him. And so in this journey, walking through the path, we're really wrestling with this deep, founded, purposeful question, and it's who, who do you believe Jesus is? I, I don't think there's a more important question for each and every one of us to wrestle with in our lives than how we answer that. The reason why it matters is all eternity centers on how we answer that question. And I would hope that we would come to a place that we see Jesus for who he really is. He, he's both human, but he is God in the flesh. That's why we celebrate at Christmas time Emmanuel, and we sing songs of that, because he is God with us. And he came for a purpose, and we're exploring that purpose as he walked towards the cross, and we ultimately get to celebrate on Easter. A couple things real quick I want to mention when it comes to that. April 7th. It's Friday, which is also known as Good Friday, um, and, it's, and it's a moment for us to remember the cross, and specifically the day in which Jesus died on the cross. We're going to have a joint service with all three congregations together at our Lake Nona uh, location at 7 p.m. that evening. Love for you to come and join us. It's just going to be a night of prayer, a night of taking communion together, a night of worship. It'll be about an hour long. There's no children's care. It's, it's child-friendly. Just bring your children in with you. And it's going to be a great time for us to just pray and worship together. And then Easter, we've got two services. So we've got two services up there, two services here. Here's the thing I want to encourage you to do. I want you to be praying. I want you to pray that God would help you see people the way that he sees people. Who is it in your community? Who is it maybe at your workplace that may be on that fence? Maybe they're wrestling with some deep questions. Maybe they're wrestling with their own faith that God would give you the courage and the opportunity to invite them to join you and your family this Easter. Um, at the same time, we're expecting more than we've ever had this year to show up to Easter services. 
Um, what that means is what an opportunity to be able to just roll out the red carpet and give people a warm welcome. And if you're not already serving and volunteering and being part, we'd love to have your help on Easter morning. Um, you can stop by our guest services table over here with the mints and stuff like that following service and say, hey, I would love to help. Um, if it's just shake hands, point directions, hold babies, whatever, there are a lot of different opportunities to be able to be involved. We'd love to have each and every one of you involved with that. So as we are wrestling through these questions of, of who Jesus is, today I want to specifically kind of refocus our, our, our conversation towards why. Why did Jesus do what he did? Why is that? It's that place of inspiration. It's the place that sometimes we maybe wrestle with the most in life. There's all kinds of things that we see, whether or not it's on TV, whether or not it's at news, it's at a sporting event. I mean, I found myself even yesterday watching a 12U softball game going, why? Like, why'd you throw that? Why'd you do that? You know, there, there's just, there's things in life that cause us to, to ask that question as well. For instance, even my son, my seven-year-old, yesterday, again, we're at a softball tournament. Um, I see him walk up to me with a paper towel around this green thing. And I'm going, what in the world is that? And all of a sudden I realize he takes a bite out of it. It is like the biggest pickle I've ever seen in my life. And for me, I'm sitting there going, why in the world would you ever do that? Now, for those that don't know me, I, I loathe pickles. Like, there's nothing in the world worse than a pickle. Um, if I go to Chick-fil-A and I ask for my sandwich, I expect no pickles on it. Like, I'll tell them, like, I don't want pickles. And if they put pickles on it, I can't pull them off. Like, I have no problems hunting, doing dirty things, but for some reason, pickles. Like, I don't want to touch a pickle. I... I, I don't want to smell a pickle. I, I hate pickles. And I can eat anything except a pickle. And here my seven-year-old's walking up eating, like, the largest pickle. And he's just looking at me, Dad, like, this is amazing. And I'm sitting there going, why? Like, wh why, why would you do that? Why? No. And then to make it worse, two hours later, he walks up eating another one. And I'm going, like, first of all, I'm going, my seven-year-old, he's mooching all kinds of money or something from people. I'm like, I didn't buy it from him. I don't know where he's getting these things. But somehow he looks cute, and he's able to figure that out. But he's sitting there, and he's chomping on it. And afterwards, he's like, Dad, I am so full. And I'm sitting there going, why? Like, that is the nastiest thing I could ever imagine eating in my, my life right there. But he's sitting there going, I, I love it. I love it. And I, again, Why? I want us to wrestle today with the why of Jesus. Like, why, why the cross? Why did he do what he did? Why did he step forward? Like we talked about last week when Trey led, talking about the three in the Garden of Gethsemane. Why did he willingly step forward in the moment? And so today we're going to be taking a look at a passage in Mark chapter 15. If you have your Bibles, go and open there or open your digital device to Mark chapter 15. We're going to begin in verse 1 here in, in just a moment, but I want to kind of set the, the moment. So last week, we, we set the scene. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is arrested. He's taken away. And that's kind of where we left off last week. We picked back up in this week where now Jesus has exited the garden He's been surrounded, he's been bound, and he's actually, when you take a look at the timeline of actually all the different things that happen, the first thing is you kind of look at all the Gospels, he's taken to the house of Caiaphas, and he stands before a man named Annas, 
And Annas is actually the father-in-law of the high priest Caiaphas. He previously was the high priest. He was removed a number of years before this moment happens, but for some reason he's still seen as a man of great power. He's a man of incredible position. And so Jesus is first brought before Annas, and then from Annas he is now taken before the Sanhedrin, still in the home of Caiaphas. Now what we need to understand is this is happening illegally. This isn't the way that the law was to play out, but they had hidden motives. I mean, I love the fact that we live in the country that we live in. We have so many incredible freedoms. We get the opportunity to to worship like this freely without persecution, where there's other places in the world, like they are literally putting their life on the line if they were to come to a public gathering like this to worship Jesus. I, I love the fact that we have some of those freedoms. The fact that we have the opportunity to have a fair trial, to be judged by our peers is one of the great things of the U.S. court system. Now, the U.S. court system has broken components to it, but it's still the best one in the world. Jesus didn't have that opportunity. Jesus didn't have the opportunity to have a fair trial. And so this is all taking place in the middle of the night. Jesus is now before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is kind of the the law keepers of, of religion, okay? That's the best way I could kind of explain them. They're the religious law keepers. And they are coming before Jesus, and they're accusing him of blasphemy, of saying that he is God. And all of this, again, is happening in the middle of the night. They wait till dawn breaks. And at that point, they can actually reconcile the fact that Jesus is guilty of blasphemy, and they can make it look like this all happened legally. So they wait till the morning of, then they make their official accusations, and then they take them to Pilate, Pilate's Roman governor that oversees the area. It was a requirement for Jews in this moment, for the Sanhedrin, to have the permission of Rome in order for anybody to even be executed. So this was a natural next step. They take Jesus before Pilate. Pilate comes to realize that Jesus is from Galilee, and he actually sends Jesus then before Herod. This is the same Herod that had John the Baptist killed, cousin of Jesus. So as Jesus then stands before Herod, Herod actually begins to mock Jesus and then sends Jesus back to Pilate for official rulings to be made. So that kind of sets the moment. That gives us the context of what we're about to read. So let's pick up Mark chapter 15. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. It says, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consolation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Let me stop there. It's interesting when you take a look at this, that in the passage, they bound Jesus. They deliver him. The the Romans considered any king not appointed by them to be a threat. By sending Jesus to Pilate, bound and presumably surrounded by some type of armed guard, most likely, the Jewish leaders are giving the impression to Pilate, and to the high court that Jesus is a major threat. So they're trying to set the tone to Pilate of, hey, you need to deal with this man. We pick up in verse 2. 
It says, And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest then accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? You see how many charges they bring against you, but Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate is amazed. Here we, as we read this, as we take a moment, what we have to remind ourselves is that Jesus is innocent of all the charges that he's being falsely accused of. But the fascinating thing is he doesn't defend his innocence. I think about in my own life, my guess is it's true for you, that some of the most painful moments of my life have been when people have said something about me that's not true. And they falsely accuse something or they slander something. And our natural defense is to do what? We, we want to defend ourselves. But we, we want to set the record straight. We, we want to make sure every ha- everybody has an accurate understanding of what actually happened or how it played out or who I really am, that I'm a person of character, I'm a person of integrity. I would never do that. I would never say that. Like, we want to, in those moments, stand up for justice. We want the right thing to come forward. We want to defend innocence. We want to defend our own innocence. And in this moment, Jesus cheated, falsely judged. He's falsely accused. What's he do? Nothing. Nothing. And, and, and I, I find it fascinating, too. When you, when you look at it from a theological perspective, there's this term that's referred to, used to Jesus theologically, that Jesus is the second Adam meaning he's the one that comes and he sets the law straight. Adam, the first man who was created, couldn't live the perfect life. He couldn't live the life that God intended for him. He chose to do things his own way. We all know the story of, of Adam, Eve, eating from the tree, the fruit that was forbidden. When Adam is confronted with his sin of what he did wrong, what did Adam do? Well, God, it's, it wasn't my fault. God, it, it, it's the woman's fault. And then the interesting thing is the way that Adam p- proposes it, it's the woman you gave me, God, so it's not our fault. This is really your fault. And he pushes the blame aside. He doesn't want to, in this moment, take upon what, honestly, he deserves. So when you compare the way and the response of the first Adam to Jesus, the second Adam, who's completely innocent, and yet he doesn't stand up. He doesn't say anything. It's crazy. But it's a fulfillment also of prophecy. Hundreds of years before, Isaiah, God's prophet, God's spokesperson to the nation of Israel said this. This is in Isaiah 53, 7. He says he was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led, get this, the picture, he's led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep to silent before the shears. He did not open his mouth. I don't know if we fully grasp that picture. Like, I love animals. I've got a, a dog 
I've got a cat, but I don't talk about the cat. I love most animals. Cats, I'm, I can do without. But I, I've got a dog, and I think about moments like I, it, there have been times when my dog and I, we've been out, we've been running through the woods or whatever, and he gets a thorn in his paw. And he doesn't want to step on it, but he knows he needs help. He can't get it out. Some of you probably experienced similar things with different types of animals, and you'll come to me, and his eyes are kind of heavy, and you feel bad for him. You're looking, and you're trying to figure out what's going on, and he doesn't want to, to deal with the pain, doesn't want to deal with it, but quietly he sits there with almost this different kind of demeanor on his face and a look in his eyes as you kind of take the thorn out of his, his paws. The picture I get is similar of this kind of moment when Isaiah is describing what is about to take place hundreds of years later, like a sheep led to the shears. You think about it, the fact that when you shear a sheep, you usually just come in, you grab the sheep, you manhandle it, you throw it down on his back, you pull it, you hold it, and you start shearing the sheep. The sheep has no real collection, understanding of what's going on in this moment. And the picture Isaiah gives us is of one of just this stare, this look, what's going on, I need help. But the sheep does nothing. It's just quiet. It doesn't bad, doesn't anything. And it gives me a perspective, like, what was the look on Jesus' face in the midst of this? being falsely accused what was the look in his eyes was it love determination focus mission so you have this moment Jesus is now brought before Pilate he says nothing we pick back up in verse 6 it says now at the feast he used to, used to release from them one prisoner for whom they asked and among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy. You get this. He perceives that the, the religious elites are envious of Jesus. He doesn't see any wrongdoing, in other words, in Jesus. He says, for he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for him Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Why? There's that question. Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted out all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. You have this moment, Pilate, part of his main job is just to keep insurrection from happening. To keep peace, to make Rome happy. Pilate is a man of power of, from a human perspective. He is a man of great position. He most likely knew Caesar personally. And so the last thing he wants is an uproar. He doesn't want any type of insurrection going on. So there's an element going, well, this is what the people want. I'll give them what the people want. I'm not going to step in between. Even though the man I perceive has done nothing wrong, he sees the envy that the religious leaders have of Jesus. He just says, fine, I don't want to deal with it. 
I wash my hands. Here goes Jesus. Then he hands them over to the Roman guards, the Roman soldiers, which we need to understand were experts. They were professionals at torture and execution. And when we see that he's handed over to them, the terms that we see when we understand Roman culture and we understand the context, we're looking at that they handed him over to be tortured and beaten by roughly 500 soldiers. This isn't a couple. This is a large group. You, you just place yourself in the middle of that setting. And this is what we read starting in verse 16. The soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews! Sarcastically, obviously. Verse 19, and then they were striking his head with a reed, spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and they put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Let's not miss who this Jesus is. Just last week, we had the perspective. Jesus is the one when the guards, 500, enter into the Garden of Gethsemane looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Where's Jesus of Nazareth? Jesus comes forward and he says, I am. Again, assigning the proper title, the proper name of God to himself. I am. 500 war-torn, beaten-up Roman soldiers fall backwards out of fear. In that moment, God reveals truly his glory. In that moment... We see Jesus for who he really is. Jesus was no victim. He stepped willingly into this moment. The same Jesus, just hours before, stepped forward and the guards fall down in the midst of who Jesus is, is the same Jesus that here is being tortured to the point that he was unrecognizable, as Scripture describes it. Why? Why? Before we fully answer that question, I want us to wrestle through the different reactions that we see in this passage. There, honestly, there's five different characters, and they all have a unique reaction to who Jesus is. The first is, we have Pilate. Pilate, a man of great position. He's a man of incredible authority. When you think about it from purely humanistic perspective, Here's a man that's been granted. He's been given substantial power as Roman governor, at least what he thinks. Which is a great reminder to all of us. Influence is a gift from God. At any moment, God can give us influence, and at any moment, God can take that influence away. It's something that we shouldn't ever take for granted. In this moment of his life, Pilate is in a position of great influence. Pilate looks at Jesus, bound by the Jewish leaders, not defending himself, and he sees anything but power in Jesus. He might pity him. He, he might even look at Jesus and go, there's no way he's a king. 
I know Caesar. This is no king. And in this, he sees no power in Jesus. Maybe your story has been similar to Pilate. Maybe you've been granted position of influence. Maybe you've experienced having power. Maybe when you look at Jesus, you kind of go, Jesus, yeah, he's a historical character. There's nothing really here. Maybe there's a little bit of Pilate in all of us. The second is you see the religious leaders, Caiaphas, those of his house, the Sanhedrin, the, these religious elites. These guys, for they, they loved having power. They loved their position. But there's an aspect of this that they were scared to death of Jesus because they were scared of losing their position and their power to Jesus. Even Pilate perceives it in them. When Pilate looks at them and says, hey, they're just, the reason Jesus is here is they're envious of who Jesus is and the, the, the crowd that seems to follow Jesus. But the religious leaders, they would rather have Barabbas, a, a, a true criminal, a murderer, an insurrectionist from the perspective of Rome. They would rather have Barabbas released than Jesus. Maybe we can relate. For some of us, we feel like if, if I say yes to truly following Jesus, it means I must have to give up something. And we love our stuff, or we love our position. We love our influence. We love our power. We love the things that we get to experience more than Jesus himself. And we've allowed those things to cloud our perspective of who Jesus really is and what Jesus has really come to do. What is it in your life? What is the thing that draws your attention and your interest towards more than allowing Jesus to lead? There's a little bit of Pilate, and if we're honest, there's a little bit of the religious leaders in all of us. The third reaction we have is of the crowd. The crowd in that moment crying out, hey, release Barabbas. We don't want Jesus. No, no, no. We want Barabbas. They're just influenced by others that had a louder voice. There's an element like they just want to go with the crowd. They don't want to stand out. They don't want other people to perceive that they may be a little bit different. And so because that's the safe play, I'm just going to do what everybody else is doing in this moment. Let's be honest. There's a lot of us as Christians that that really is more of who we are and how we live our life. We just want to blend in. We don't want to be seen as different. But our world is crying for something that's different. Because the world isn't the thing that's going to fill the void. As followers of Jesus, we're called to be different. We're called to stand out. It, it, in some circles, it may mean that we're a little bit weird. But we're called to do that. Why? Eternity is in the balance. Eternity is in the balance. The fourth perspective is that of the soldiers. The soldiers, they mock Jesus. Remember, again, this is the creator. This is I am in the flesh. This is Emmanuel, God with us. And here they are. They mock him. 
They mock his position. They mock him as king. They mock him as judge. For some of them and some of us, it's not enough to just dis- to disagree with our belief. But the soldiers, they wanted to destroy and shame any follower of Jesus. Some of us may wrestle even with that or be on the receiving end of it. The last is Barabbas. It's Barabbas. Barabbas is the, the one here that has led an uprising. He's spilt blood. He's overthrown the Roman government or worked to do so. And as a result, Barabbas has embodied truly the notions, the aspirations of the Jewish nation. They wanted to be free from Rome. Barabbas was that figure. He was that stereotype. This is who we want to be. This is what we want the Messiah to be like. Jesus taught people things that they didn't want to hear. And what was customary was that at every Passover moment, that because Rome wanted to keep the people happy, hey, we'll release in representative of the Passover where blood was covered over the doorways, and as a result, the death angel passed over God's people. They were all free. They were all experienced God's grace from what judgment that they deserved. Rome wanted to appease the people, and so they said, hey, we want to keep you happy. As a part of the Passover celebration, we'll release a prisoner. We will show grace. See, we're not just heavy-handed. We're not just this authoritarian group of people, but we want to show grace, and this is a practical way in which we can do that. And so they come before the crowd. They come before the religious leaders. Hey, who do you want? Do you want the king of, of the Jews, Jesus? Or do you want this Barabbas? And they cry out, Barabbas. When we think about it in the moment as we read on this side of things, in a way it, it, it violates our inborn sense of justice. You know, Jesus was, he was free of all sin, yet when he went through trial, torture, crucifixion, Barabbas was the rebel. Barabbas is the murderer. He's the robber. And for some reason, it's like, Barabbas, he gets off scot-free. Like, why, why didn't he pay a price here? How does he just get out? How does he experience freedom? If we were there, we would truly want justice. I think we'd want the crowd to roll out, yell out, release Jesus. Jesus, let, let him go. He's done nothing wrong. But instead, they cry out, Barabbas, Barabbas. Barabbas. Release Barabbas. And they yell out, crucify Jesus. Think of it here for a moment. Barabbas, from worldly standards, is an awful man. He's a criminal. He's a thief. He's a murderer. He's a rebel. He's a sinner. Barabbas was the one that was set free. And Jesus took his place on the cross. A cross that truly was meant for Barabbas. You see, when I I look inside myself, and I I would challenge each and every one of us to do the same right now in, in this moment, to just take a look, take a moment and look in yourself. I 
realize I'm Barabbas. You're Barabbas. You see, we are all guilty. We've all messed up. We've all been broken. We've all wrestled through sin. We are in need of serious, serious help. But you see, we get to go free because of who Jesus is, that Jesus was willing to step in front of and die in our place. Like Barabbas, we deserve punishment. But Jesus became our substitute, just as Jesus became Barabbas' substitute in that moment. Author, theologian, man named John Stott, he wrote this. He said, The concept of substitution lies at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. In other words, we want to be God. We want to be the decision makers. We want it to go our way. We're quick to substitute ourselves in God's place. He says, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. The Apostle Peter said it this way in 1 Peter 2.24. He said, who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sins and to live to righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. I wonder what happened to Barabbas. Bible never tells us. That's like the last moment we see Barabbas. Even history doesn't say anything about what happened to Barabbas. But I wonder, I just wonder if Barabbas was there witnessing Jesus being beaten beyond recognition, having a crown of thorns shoved on his head, seeing him mocked by 500 soldiers and wrestling with this question, why? Was Barabbas there at the cross looking at Jesus hanging on the cross going, I I should be there, not him. That's where I deserve to be. Did Barabbas at any one of those moments, as he looked at the substitution hanging from the cross, seeing him beaten, seeing him bruised, did he even at once say, thank you? Thank you. Or did he just turn and walk the other way? Giving it no thought. We don't know. But the reality is, We are all here like Barabbas. And we do have a choice. We have the choice of whether or not as we look at the cross in this Easter season, do we see ourselves up there? Do we see the fact that Jesus steps in the gap and he says, you know what, I'll take his place and allows us to get down off the cross and he he hangs there for us. Why? Why would Jesus suffer? Why would he step forward and say, I'm here? Why would he do that? For some of us, we look at him and go, yeah, it's, well, God, he's, he's loving. Yes, yes, God is loving. But what we have to understand is God didn't do it because of we deserved it. God did it because he is love. 
That's just an outpouring of who he is. And he recognizes that for each and every one of us, the best place for us to live, for us to thrive, to enjoy life, is to truly be under his authority. And so he dealt with the things that kept us separated. And he made men so that we could be made right with him. And he knew the only way that that sacrifice would have value is if he did it himself. So he stepped forward. He stepped in the gap. He became our substitute. Here's the thing that worries me is just as I began talking about a friend that I worked out with for years, there are people in your neighborhood. There are people you go to work with. There are people that you go to school with. They have no idea truly what they deserve. They have no idea what's just on the other side. They have no idea of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. Part of our responsibility, church, is to help them understand who Jesus is and the love of Jesus that exists. So, But it's not enough for us to just know that this is important. We've got to have the courage to actually do it. And so as we come to a close this, this morning, I just want to take a moment. I want to pray for us. And I want to pray, Lord, that you give us the courage as we step forward to do what we know you've called us to do. To have the hard conversations, to share the love, share the experience of who Jesus is with us, with others around us. Would you just join me? Lord, we love you. And God, we need you. And God, as I, I, I'm reminded this Easter season of your enormous love that you had for each and every one of us, that you would step forward and you would walk willingly as our substitute to the cross. God, thank you. Thank you. I pray that there wouldn't be a day of our lives that go by that as we experience your grace and your mercy that we wouldn't just say thank you. But at the same time, Lord, there are friends, there's families, there are coworkers, there are people all around us that have no idea. Give us the courage to engage conversation. Give us the courage to know how to pray so that they may come to know who you are and your salvation. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.